The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. Good afternoon, everyone. It's uh, good to be here, and uh, I want to thank David for the invitation to participate with you this afternoon. Uh, it's obviously been already uh, a long day, and uh, you've had a lot to uh, cram in in the short space of time. So I want to uh, be as concise as I can this afternoon and leave time uh, for a break. You're going to need a rest and then some Q&A uh, to conclude. Let's begin by uh, reading from God's Word, and I want to turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Ecclesiastes chapter 12. And I want to read a few verses from a passage where one of the great thinkers of the Old Testament era, King Solomon, reflects on the meaning of life, having surveyed his way through life under the sun, life without reference to God, if you like, and reached certain conclusions about its vanity, its meaninglessness, long before the existentialists ever came on the scene. The essence of the new atheism is existentialism, that is that life and reality, uh, meaning, must all be defined in terms of man and not God. And Solomon examined that conclusion, the idea of life under the sun without reference to God, and here is what he concludes in chapter 12 of Ecclesiastes. Remember now your creator in the days of your youth, before the difficult days come and the years draw near when you say, I have no pleasure in them. While the sun and the light, the moon and the stars are not darkened and the clouds do not return after the rain. In the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men bow down, when the grinders cease because they are few and those that look through the windows grow dim, when the doors are shut in the streets and the sound of grinding is low, when one rises up at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of music are brought low, also they are afraid of height and afraid of terrors in the way, when the almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper is a burden and desire fails, For man goes to his eternal home and the mourners go about in the streets. Remember your creator before the silver cord is loosed or the golden bowl is broken or the pitcher shattered at the fountain or the wheel broken at the well. Then the dust will return to the earth as it was and the spirit will return to God who gave it. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all It's vanity. Now this is a description of getting old. I'm reading from the New King James Version, but if you're reading from a much more modern rendering in the English, uh, it will often, for example, the New Living Translation will actually interpret this poetry for you. But the, the years in which one finds no pleasure are ones where the writer says the eyesight is failing, hearing is failing, your legs are trembling, when your teeth are falling out, 
when the sound of grinding is low, one rises up at the sound of a bird, is a description of hearing loss, and yet being wakened at almost anything in the night, being afraid of heights, losing sexual desire, until finally one goes to one's eternal home and the mourners go about in the streets. The philosopher says, remember your creator before the silver cord is loosed, before the golden bowl is broken, these are poetic expressions of death, of dying. The Egyptians used to believe that there was a cord that joined the soul and the body. And so King Solomon really speaks to the atheist and says, look, remember your creator now in the days of your youth before it's too late. One of the things to keep front and centre when one considers the new atheism, and by new, as has already been stated, there's nothing new about atheism at all. Uh, in fact, it's as old as humankind. Uh, the new expression of it has just come out in a glut of recent books. But whenever people confront the ultimate questions of life, they ask for basic questions. Origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. These are the four fundamental and most basic questions that define any given worldview. How does it answer the question of origin? How does it answer the question of meaning? How does it answer the question of value, morality, and the question of destiny? Now, atheism as such, or secular humanism, which is almost invariably atheistic, is, as I've stated, existentialism. And existentialism is simply the desire to find man, human beings, as the source of all definition, as one's own God. Atheism, in and of itself, is a philosophically impossible position to hold, and therefore most Atheists today uh, refer to themselves in some other light as agnostics or as one atheist professor I recently debated defined himself as an ag-theist. The reason for that is that atheism is a universal negative. There is no God. The problem with that position, however, is that nobody can look under every atom in the universe to discover whether God is there or not. Therefore, it's a, always a probabilistic position for the atheist. They can't be sure there's no God. What atheism amounts to is the belief that for them personally, for the individual professing an atheistic perspective, they are unconvinced by the arguments for theism, in particular Christian theism. And therefore, the atheist position is invariably modified. In fact, I've never met a true atheist to agnosticism. They remain unconvinced about the arguments for theism. Ag-theism, as one uh, professor put it to me, saying that he was still waiting for an epiphany. You know what an epiphany is? Some sort of revelation of God from heaven, although I doubted his sincerity. Recently, if you've been following the news... Uh, the international news in the United Kingdom, uh, the Humanist Society, 
recently has started an advertising campaign on London buses. Uh, apparently one commuter in London didn't like the fact that she saw an advertisement on a, a bus, a London bus, for a church. And uh, she decided that um, her strapline was, why should God have all the advertising space? Although, I mean, it's a ludicrous statement. God gets almost no airtime these days. Uh, but why should God have all the best ad space? And so she decided to start a fundraising campaign. And now, in London, right now, as we speak, the London buses, many of them are being papered with a new ad campaign supported by Richard Dawkins and others. And the caption reads, There is probably no God. Therefore, stop worrying and enjoy yourself, or enjoy your life. There is probably no God. Therefore, stop worrying and enjoy your life. Now that, in many respects, sums up the new atheism. That's its message. Amidst uh, all the sophistry and the uh, fallacious argumentation that is offered, the message is simply this, there's probably no God, therefore stop worrying and enjoy yourself. Don't be restrained by uh, religion, don't be restrained by ethical codes and so on and so forth, but express yourself. Agnosticism really is the position, and the term agnostic literally means ignorance. And I think that is a fitting epitaph for those who profess the new atheism. I have had uh, the privilege, the opportunity over the last few years to be involved in a whole number of debates at universities. I'm often told by Christians today, from time to time anyway, that apologetics no longer is relevant and that people aren't interested in apologetic arguments. Every debate I've been involved with in contexts where I am virtually unknown have been packed with hundreds and hundreds of students because students are interested in the question not just is there a God but what is God like? Young people are interested in that question. Who is he? What is his character and his nature? And if you examine the arguments of the new atheists they are not really um, uh, hands, uh, fistfuls of sophisticated metaphysical arguments about the invalidity of causality or whatever. They are moral arguments against this God, the God of Scripture. And I will come to that in a moment. It's often objected, of course, for us as Christians that our God is remote and irrelevant, and this is often the tack that the popular atheism of our day takes. The writer of Ecclesiastes, though, is telling us that nothing could be further from the truth, that God, from our youth to our old age, is absolutely relevant, and that life without him is vanity and the chasing after the wind. Many will acknowledge, many a modern atheist will acknowledge, at best, that Christianity, the faith, has some benefits, some fringe benefits, nothing to do with its truth value, but some psychological benefit. That is, if you're a person of faith, you'll probably live longer, because you may have a more positive outlook on life it's likely that you will recover more quickly from illness, according to some studies. That if you're in hospital and you believe in God, then you are more likely to recover a bit more quickly. A bit like being a dog owner, apparently, leads you to live longer. 
Uh, being married, if you're a man, means you'll live a bit longer than unmarried men. It doesn't work the same for women. I can't quite work that out, but I'll leave that to you to work out. And some will look at religion, look at Christianity in particular, and say, okay, well, we will grant that religion has fringe benefits, a bit like yoga or tennis, but it has nothing to do with the truth status of our belief system. In such a way, then, Christianity will be tolerated to an extent, but what has the new atheists absolutely up in arms is that any attempt to propagate that faith, any attempt to apply Christian theistic values to education, to history, to science, to any aspect of life, even to sharing that faith in the public sphere in any way, shape or form, is an unforgivable sin. A church advert on a bus. Of course, they insist on their position, the secular humanist, the atheistic position, as being a neutral position, in which they will uh, patronise and give space to uh, religions in the context of a free society, a secular humanist society, which becomes less and less free the more you seek to understand it. In more extreme cases, though, increasingly popularised by the likes of Dawkins and Hitchens and Harris and so forth, Christianity is more than something that is a, 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 a vague source of irritation, rather it is a dangerous self delusion. And this is the kind of message that we are now hearing from those who call themselves the new atheists. Christianity does for the intellectually weak for them what intoxication and drug use does for others. It creates an artificial atmosphere to give temporary escape from your troubles so that you might be comforted. It's a delusion. It's a delusion that people buy into for a whole variety of, a variety of reasons, but mainly it's for comfort. And that because delusions are dangerous, Christianity is dangerous. In his book, The God Delusion, atheist fundamentalist Dawkins makes a very questionable attempt to repopularize an atheistic argument by Ludwig Feuerbach, who argued in 1841 that God had been invented or dreamed up by human beings to give intellectual and spiritual consolation. Now, of course, he didn't invent that argument. Uh, even in the, the Psalms, we read of the skeptics, the wicked, saying, who will show us any good? God is not in the heavens. We can do as we please. God won't notice. He's not there. If he is, he has no relevance to us. Karl Marx equally held that people need the God delusion because of their economic and social alienation. So we've seen these arguments, these types of arguments before. Sigmund Freud famously believed that God was a delusion, a product of the human longing for a stable father figure. And that when we grew up, as human beings, when we evolve further psychologically, we would grow out of this pathetic need for a cosmic father figure, and therefore the world would grow out of the need for God. Karl Marx thought that when his social revolution had taken place, 
religion would naturally be at an end because there would be no more social and economic alienation and therefore no need for a god. Interestingly, Alistair McGrath, in his response to the God delusion in his book, The Dawkins Delusion, addresses this particular notion of God being some sort of human invention, some kind of delusion, in response to a section in Dawkins' book where he likens belief in God to believing in a teapot orbiting the sun, he, uh, McGrath summarizes the argument this way, the argument of these atheists. There is no God, premise one. But lots of people believe in God. Why? Because they want consolation. So they project or objectify their longings and call this God. So this non-existent God is the projection of human longings. That's the argument. That's the essence of the argument. Well, McGrath rightly points out, the Oxford professor, that this argument cuts both ways. It's not a good argument, but it can be spun the other way. There is a God, premise one. Some people don't believe in God. Why? Because they are afraid of being accountable to a supreme judge. So they project this wish onto reality and call it atheism. Now, these arguments don't have much value in my opinion, but they do at least show, this does at least show the superficiality of this kind of an argument that has been used repeatedly by atheists in one form or another. Belief in God is often conveniently written off by the new atheists an apologist for atheism as a byproduct of evolution, a kind of mystical gene. We can call this universal Darwinism. And universal Darwinism really teaches us, and most of the new atheists hold to a universal Darwinism, that the evolutionary process must be able to account for, biology must be able to account for absolutely everything, including our beliefs, or particularly theistic beliefs. And their religious presupposition in all of this is naturalism. So they begin with a naturalistic worldview. Everybody who comes to these questions does not begin unbiased, does not begin from any sort of neutral position. Neutrality is a myth. Their commitment is naturalism. Naturalism simply means that no other Causal factors can be invoked for all of life and reality except naturalistic ones. Nothing supernatural. Nothing that invokes God. And their perspective is that because they are naturalists, beliefs, God, and belief in revelation or anything associated with belief in God, in particular the Christian God, must be explained away in naturalistic terms. Dawkins has argued that religion, and he doesn't distinguish belief in God from religion, which shows the superficiality of his analysis, since the vast majority of the world's religions don't believe in God. You've got uh, the theistic, the Judeo-Christian worldview, and then the uh, imitators of the Judeo-Christian faith, centuries after. The rest of the world's religions don't believe in God. You do not have an infinite personal deity in other world faiths. So he doesn't make that distinction, but he says anyway that religion is an accidental byproduct 
The technical term is epiphenomenon, if you want to put your false teeth in. And that literally means, a, for him, a misfiring of something useful. In other words, something that is designed, uh, that, uh, I shouldn't use the term design, something that is meant to fulfill a useful purpose, misfires, and religious beliefs are the result. Now think about the absurdity of this for a minute. Here is a man who claims that there is no God, there is no designer, there is no purpose, there is no good and evil, there is no right and wrong, there is just blind, pitiless indifference, and we are just dancing to our DNA. That's reality, that's the universe. And then he tries to invoke an argument, in a universe without design or purpose, that something is misfired. Listen to what Richard Daw- uh, uh, Alistair McGrath says in response, and I quote, How can Dawkins speak of, of religion as something accidental when his understanding of the evolutionary process precludes any theoretical framework that allows him to suggest that some outcomes are intentional and others accidental? For Darwinism, everything is accidental. Things may have the appearance of design, but this appearance of design or intentionality arises from random developments. In other words, in a universe for Dawkins where he's trying to make sense out of everything in terms of biology, the very notions of misfiring and intentionality are absurd. How can religion be a misfiring of something? Because that means a previous assumption of that some outcomes are intentional and others therefore might be accidental, but there is no intentionality in his universe. So from the very outset, the whole argument, the whole rationale for explaining away beliefs is absurd. How can religion be the misfiring of something when there is no pre-ordained purpose of something firing correctly. To simply assert that brain modules and this brain activity are a possible cause of belief in God and of religion is equally ridiculous since brain activity is the basic requirement of all human experience and thought. In other words, all of these efforts to explain away God in terms of the scientific method and and psychologically are absurd. What I want to do for a few moments now is offer you a couple of several reasons why we as Christian theists, some of the reasons we do advance for belief in God, why we believe atheism is completely untenable. First of all, belief in life is inescapable. Atheist, agnostic, humanist, Buddhist, Muslim, Hindu, Christian, we all have beliefs. Belief is inescapable in life. And the argument that is so often advanced by these people, by these atheists, is that belief without sufficient supporting evidence, based on their criterion for evidence, is immoral. It's irrational, and it's dangerous. But let's just examine that for a moment. If belief is unacceptable, why should any of us ever believe a friend's word? Or the testimony 
of a witness. How many of you here, for example, believe that the people you see in those pictures back home and the people you visit on the weekend really are your parents? Do you believe your parents are your parents? Now, how many of you have actually had your DNA tested to prove that your parents are your parents? So, none of you. Which means the rest of you believe it. You believe it on faith. Now, you may have all kinds of reasons for believing it, as we have all kinds of reasons for believing in God, but it is not ridiculous or absurd for you to believe that your parents are your parents, and yet you have never proved it or established it. If it is irrational to believe in God because of lack of empirical support or because it's not self-evident that there is a God to some of these people, then here are some of the things that we can equally not believe. We cannot believe in the external world. That is a world outside of your brain. There is no philosophical or successful argument that can establish that there is an external universe out here. You can't believe that then because you can't prove it empirically and it's not self-evident. Philosophers have argued about it for centuries. You can't believe in other minds because there is no successful philosophical argument that can establish there are other minds except yours in the universe. Why could I not be a figment of your imagination today? How do you know you're sat in this Lutheran church? How do you know you're not in the matrix? There is no successful argument to show that there are other minds. You might be sat next to an android. There is no argument that can establish the reliability of memory. How do you know your memory is reliable? How do you know that you were created five minutes ago and you were just deposited here, all your memories pre-programmed? Any argument that tries to support the reliability of memory already presupposes the reliability of memory. You can't have the inductive principle either. That is, you can't even argue from causality. Because as David Hume rightly argued, you do not see causality in life, you see succession. And you believe in causality to make sense of succession. You do not see a law of causality. You see that one thing follows another. If I hold up my case and I drop my case like this and it does this every time, I'm not seeing a law of causality, I'm seeing succession. And I hypothesize a law, but only one contrary instance is required to pull down my entire thesis. You can't have the inductive method then. In other words, on such a view, it is wrong to believe anything without empirical support proof or self-evident understanding is ludicrous. In fact, most of our knowledge would be destroyed. The idea that it is wrong to believe on insufficient evidence is not a statement established on sufficient evidence. And this is what wrecked what was termed logical positivism. Logical positivism was the idea that you cannot really have um, meaningful statements that cannot be empirically verified, but the verification principle itself couldn't be empirically verified. And so logical positivism was wrecked. Some of our beliefs, then, are properly basic to our knowledge structure. If I said to you, today I remembered my 15th birthday, I can't prove that statement to you. 
but it's nonetheless true. If I said to you, this morning I was sat on my deck and I thought about how my wife loves me, I can't prove that to you. But I believe it nonetheless as much as I believe many other things in life. If I'm outside and I say, there is a tree before me, I can't prove that statement to you. But I believe it nonetheless because they are basic to my structure of knowledge. In other words, most of our beliefs, we don't sit down and say, hmm, shall I believe this or shall I believe that? Let me balance the evidence. We just find ourselves with that belief. Properly basic to our rational structure. I don't infer from anything more basic that I remembered my 15th birthday. I don't infer that belief from some other set of beliefs. I just find myself with that belief. Alvin Plantinger, a very fine Christian philosopher, has shown very convincingly that even belief in God actually belongs to this set of beliefs, which is why only 4.4 of the world's population even profess atheism. Because people find themselves with belief in a supreme being. Really, the argument between atheists and theists boils down to this. Can we describe reality and account for it in impersonal terms, or do we need a personal explanation? Personal or impersonal explanations. If you're coming back from France to England on a ferry, that's a boat, just in case you're not familiar with the term, uh, and you are uh, heading back to the south coast of England, you will see uh, the white cliffs of Dover. And the white cliffs are, uh, as you look at them, you say to yourself, hmm, look what the, wet, the rain and the wind and the ocean has done to the coastline of England. It's quite a striking sight. But if you go to uh, Mount Rushmore and you see the president's heads carved into the side of the rock, do you say, hmm, look what the rain and the weathering and the storms have done to the rock face? You see, one requires a personal explanation, one only requires an impersonal explanation. When a detective goes into a home where a homicide has been committed, and he finds a knife with blood on it, and he finds the, a safe opened and the money missing. He doesn't say, hmm, I wonder if a tornado blew through the house. He's looking for a personal explanation. Well, that's the question, isn't it, about all of life, about reality, about creation. Is it a personal or an impersonal explanation? And the irony is that these atheists, atheists certainly amongst them, have for some time now been training their listening devices into deep space, called the SETI project, listening for signals from outer space. Of course, most of what they listen to is background noise. All of what they listen to, in fact, is background noise. What are they listening for? Well, they're listening for some kind of signal that will not seem to be naturally occurring. Maybe 
Binary code, maybe all prime numbers tapped out. Something that indicates intelligence. And yet they can look at this world and look at this universe and look at the genetic code and say, ah, does it need intelligence? Impersonal. So even if they were to hear all the primary numbers being tapped out on some kind of deep space Morse code, why should they believe there was any intelligence behind it? Why listen? There's no intelligence. But you see, they're actually looking for a personal explanation. If they hear that, if they hear some non-random sound, you can believe that they will assume immediately there is a personal explanation. This world, this universe, can it be described impersonally or personally? We say only personally. You see, for the atheist, this world, this universe, is a world of brute factuality. That is, mute factuality, meaningless data. If you can imagine the whole universe, this world, as a kind of a womb, out of which, or a spring, out of which is being thrown constantly new things by chance. That all reality is, the, is in flux. It's atomic chaos or atomic necessity. Either way, it makes no difference. And we are simply in a universe being bombarded by raw sense data, as the empiricists believe. There is no plan, there is no purpose, there is no meaning, there is no preordained structure to reality. There is no sovereign word from God. There is no divine decree. There is no purpose or teleology in history or anything else. It's just chance. It's just atoms. The womb of chance just throws out new facts all the time. In other words, every single particular of existence, every single, if you could break up uh, existence into particular pieces, There is no relationship, no pre-established relationship between any of the facts. Every atom is a universe unto itself. You see, when we talk about meaning, unity, university, we're talking about finding a relationship between the facts of our experience. But there is no relationship between the facts of our experience and an atheist worldview. No pre-established meaning. Therefore, the only meaning that there can ever be is one which you impose upon reality which your mind imposes on reality, which has led us to our present condition, of course, with what we term post-modernity. There is no structure and plan behind reality beyond atomic necessity and ultimate determinism and ultimate fate, or an ultimate flux, and both amount to the same thing. In other words, it's the abyss, the void, or God. Now, if we are products of the abyss, from the goo through the zoo to you. And Darwin was deeply troubled by this. Why should you believe or trust any of your belief-forming processes? If you are, literally, your brain is an electrochemical accident, why would you believe anything that your mind concludes about anything? Whatever belief system you held to, what reason, what possible reason is there to trust your belief-forming processes? None at all. You see, one can only justify 
rationality in one of three ways. You can appeal downward to the sub-rational, which is what the atheist does. Appeal to the pre-hominid, appeal to the slime, appeal to the void. How can you justify the rational on the basis of the irrational? The other way of attempting to justify it is to say, well, I've got a rational argument for rationality, which of course is a vicious circle. You're already presupposing, therefore, what you're trying to establish, the validity of reasoning. The only way to justify, to believe in the validity of our reasoning is a super-rational justification, which is an appeal to God, that God has structured the universe and our minds and everything else in such a way that we can think. And that we can trust our minds in this world is ordered, structured, designed and purposeful and so is your mind. And that there is a relationship between your mind and this world. If your brain is just the random firing of chemicals, then there's absolutely no point in any debate. And I've said this to professors in debate. I've said, if your mind is molecules in motion and so is mine, your atomic accident concludes one thing, my atomic accident concludes another. There is no basis for anybody in this audience to to judge who's right and who's wrong because there's no criterion for judgment. Your brain is like a weed in the garden and my brain is like a weed in the garden and then neither argument is valid or invalid. They're just arguments. In other words, if you have a debate with somebody about God, you've already conceded God exists. How do you know you're the same person you were seven years ago? Did you know that every atom in your body has been replaced every seven years? So if you've left university at 21, you've already been three people if you're just atoms. Your identity over time cannot be established purely in terms of atoms. It's because you, have, you are constituted by God and have an eternal spirit. Eternal is wrong, immortal spirit that is in the hands of God. You see, what often the atheist will say then is simply, look, I don't see any merit, I don't see any productive value in your belief in God. Richard Dawkins would say it's irresponsible to believe in God, but even that is a moral argument. To say somebody is being irresponsible or irrational or dangerous is to say that there is a way of thinking that's not dangerous and there's a way of thinking that's dangerous. There's a way of thinking that's delusional and a way of thinking that's not delusional. In other words, there is a criterion for truth. And there's a criterion for moral truth, and yet the atheist cannot find a basis for moral judgments in his or her universe. They're just subjectively determined. Preferences. And there's certainly no basis for laws of thought in an atheist universe, laws that are immaterial, invariant, universals. They must be consensual and changeable, and therefore they are useless. In other words, next week, the laws of thought really might be different. And what about in East Timor, or in Timbuktu? Maybe the laws of thought are different there. Maybe laws of thought were different 200 years ago. How can you have an immaterial, abstract, universal law in an atheist universe? You see, the answers for these questions have never been forthcoming. And I have found in my experience that they simply cannot be answered. So the question becomes, for most of the atheists today, instead, pragmatism. 
Most of your street-level atheists... In fact, it's been interesting to me that uh, before every debate I've done with an atheist, I've had a phone call from the professor saying, I don't need my 30 minutes for the opening thesis. I only need 10 or 15. And I say, well... <clears throat> I'll ask the moderator if I can borrow an extra 10 so I can have 40 minutes because I've got some arguments. You see, the atheist doesn't actually have any arguments. What they have is their own personal doubts, quibbles, complaints. It's a very difficult thing to be an atheist. So pragmatism becomes the priority. And pragmatism for most people in the street, for your street-level atheists who's influenced by the Dawkins, the Hitchens, the Harrises and so forth, to say, look, the bottom line is I don't see its value for my life. I want to have success in this or that area. And so the only issue, the only question for me, they say, is how does this affect me? Will it give me, uh, will it make me rich? Will it make me happy? Those become the criterion because truth is relative. As Alan Bloom writes in The Closing of the American Mind, and I quote, the relativity of truth for college students in American culture is not a theoretical insight but a moral postulate. The condition of a free society, or so they see it. The point is not to correct the mistakes and really be right. Rather, it is not to think you are right at all. The students, of course, cannot defend their opinion. It is something with which they have been indoctrinated. See, the atheist, the agnostic, wants to put themselves forward as somebody who has confronted life and reality in all its cold, harsh realities. Facing the truth head on. Not deluding themselves. They want to be perceived as somebody who is rational and scientific. And they believe somehow that Christians are the opposite of this. Does that mean they are confident about the truth? No, quite the opposite. They want to hold that the truth is elusive. As Richard Dawkins has put it in terms of the universe itself, we're just dancing to our DNA. It's just blind, pitiless indifference. If there is to be any truth, it must be developed for ourselves, invented for ourselves. Socially, developed for ourselves. Now they come up with certain arguments to try and see how we might have development. I'll touch on those in just a moment. But truth has fled the universe for them in terms of an objective truth because you can't have objective truth without God. Kelly Monroe notes that people feel safer as doubters than as believers and as perpetual seekers rather than eventual finders. It was interesting for me listening to the humanist on BBC World Service who had been behind these advertisements and she said oh she said I just want people to know that you can be ethical without believing in God you can be nice without believing in God you can have a good life without believing in God now that's pure pragmatism the question is not is there a God and can I even have an argument and a and a basis for rationality without God for them. No. They just want to tell people that they want to be a perpetual seeker and live a life of goodness and morality. A goodness and morality they can't justify, but without God. Of course, the source for this 
goes back to the likes of Nietzsche, who described truth, in particular Christian truth, in this way, having announced the death of God. He said this, and I quote, The Christian truth is a mobile army of metaphors, metonyms and anthropomorphisms, in short, a sum of human relations which have been enhanced, transposed and embellished poetically and rhetorically, and which after long use seem firm, canonical and obligatory to a people. Truths are illusions about which one has forgotten this is what they are. Metaphors which are worn out and without sensuous power. To be truthful means using the customary metaphors, in moral terms, the obligation to lie according to a fixed convention. To lie herd-like in a style obligatory to all. You see, for Nietzsche, morality was a herd morality, it was a herd metaphor. Morality was just, uh, morality was just a, a going with the overall flow of the herd. And that the words used to describe morality are just anthropomorphisms and metaphors that have seemed to become canonical over time. Because for him, good and evil are human creations shaped by the will to power and his definition unavoidably destroys the distinction between truth and lies. Because all truth claims, he says, are metaphors, anthropomorphisms, going with the herd. And yet, he implies that truth claimants lie, he says, according to a fixed convention. They lie herd-like, which means that according to Nietzsche's own statement, he must be able to differentiate between the truth and the lie. This statement about truth must include or exclude itself. In other words, either Nietzsche's own words concerning truth are also just a mobile army of metaphors through which he is lying, or it excludes itself and he is speaking the truth, in which case his position is destroyed, it undermines itself. In other words, there's no mechanism for escaping truth. Any assertions about it are by definition truth claims. So the atheist or the agnostic, as much as they rail against objectivity and truth and so forth in the moral realm or the metaphysical realm themselves, are putting forth their own truths. Interestingly, returning to the pseudo-scientific polemics of Dawkins for a moment, we see that though his philosophy of scientism differs very wildly from Nietzsche, the notion of God, the ground of all truth, as an illusion, reappears in another form, another form of third lying, not this time where metaphors have become canonical, but rather this time that your belief and mine in God, according to Dawkins, is a virus. You have a belief virus that's leapt into your brain. You've got a disease. And he is the cure. Viruses that have diseased the mind, and this is why he says the better part of the world's population believes in God, because they are victims of this virus that gives them this delusion. Now, unlike real viruses, Dawkins' viruses cannot be identified or observed in their manner of functioning analysed. In fact, they're not subject to any scientific test at all. The irony from somebody who believes in scientism posits a view of beliefs that they are viruses of the mind 
where there is no possible scientific test. In other words, it's a polemical construction to allow Dawkins to lambaste people who aren't thinking properly with his ideas. To lambaste anybody who disagrees with him to say, you've got a virus. Wouldn't that be handy? Anybody who disagrees with you? Say to your wife when you get home tonight, you've got a virus, love. Your husband, you've got a virus. Very useful device, isn't it? To write off belief in something you don't want to believe in as a virus. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.